opportunity. So if you have uh, your Bible open to Ephesians chapter 2, uh, meet me in, in uh, verse 11. It'll be on the screen behind, uh, behind me. And this is what uh, uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and with, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." Praise God for his word today. Uh, I believe we forgot to uh, dismiss the kids for children's church, so I'm going to pray. And as I do, parents, you can sneak those kids on out as, uh, as we pray. So let's uh, go to the Lord and ask him to bless our time together. Lord, we thank you for today, and we thank you that you have given us your precious word. I pray that as we go through these, these uh, tough verses here that we would be not only convicted of where we fall short, but that we would also see the beauty of Christ and what he has done. Pray that you would bless this time, bless our hearts, and help change our church community here. And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Well, it's a reality that every single one of us uh, are surrounded by, but we rarely pay attention to it. Uh, that is that we are uh, constantly helped by things that have programmed, have been programmed to do things for us. This morning, more than likely, either your, your, uh, your alarm clock or your cell phone was programmed in order to, to wake you up. Uh, when you came here, your car is hardwired to fire up when you uh, turn the key in the ignition and, and go. Uh, your refrigerator, your microwave, and your stove perhaps helped you uh, with breakfast because that's what those things do. They help you in that. Uh, here at our church, we have these microphones that have been wired and programmed in a certain way that these uh, invisible connections kind of fly through the room and go back to that booth back there and, and uh, give us sound and give sound to the people uh, out there on the internet somewhere. So uh, the computer back there has been hardwired uh, to respond to a computer program so that uh, the projectors can, can project uh, these digital images 
to help enhance our, our learning. Uh, as humans, we've also been hardwired as well. We've been hardwired to eat food, to be digested, uh, to be converted into energy. Uh, we've also been uh, programmed to be social. And though we, you know, may sometimes enjoy hanging out with, with others, this, this communal system that we have been programmed with has a deep flaw. We tend to be overly individualistic and self-serving. We tend to gravitate only towards those who maybe look like us or talk like us or have similar socioeconomic backgrounds or certain education backgrounds, and we tend to create barriers in this way, and it only causes division. So what is the solution to uh, this coding error in our, in our system? Well, as we continue our, our study here in the, the foundations of the church, Paul wisely helps us this morning under, to understand that not only has the gospel saved us as individuals, we, we've seen that all the way from chapter 1 through the, the middle of chapter 2 here, but it has saved us to be a part of a new community, one that is rooted in Christ and built up in unity. It is this new humanity called the church that we are not only called to be a part of, but also that we are called to work together in so that it can thrive to glorify our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the community and the world that desperately needs him. So let's look at a three-part process on how that happens. The first is, uh, same point as last week. Remember who you were. Remember your alienation. Remember your alienation. Remember who you were. There are a lot of things that we forget. I don't know about you, but I spend an inordinate amount of time looking for my keys and my wallet. I don't remember where I put them. Uh, you know, perhaps uh, you're like us, that every so often, we go days without the television remote downstairs. We have no clue where it went. And you know, uh, a few years ago, not a big deal, right? Because you just get up and you could turn the channel on the TV or on the cable box. It doesn't work like that anymore if you have a smart TV. Like, if you don't have a remote or something on your phone, you're only stuck with one channel or the, the DVD player. You can't even get onto the, the Netflix or the, the, the Hulu or, or whatever those things are. Uh, on the flip side, a lot of us also have things that we would love to forget. We have those dumb things that we said to our spouse that was so inconsiderate. We would love to erase that huge mistake that we go back to from high school that has just been haunting us for years and changed our lives. We would love to forget the way that that person hurt us so much, but we can't. They're, they're etched on the epitaph of our memories. Now, in verses 11 through 12, uh, there is something that Paul says is so crucial that we can't afford to forget it, and we also dare not try to repress it in our memory. He says that in order to thrive spiritually and to be effective members of Christ's church, we have to remember that at one point, we were separated 
from God. Paul begins with this relational divide, not just in our division between us and God, but also with us and, and God's people at the time, the Jews. And this divide goes all the way back to the dawn of the Hebrew people. And uh, it, it went both ways for the most part. But Paul here zeroes in specifically on the Jewish hatred of the Gentiles. Israel was indeed a privileged nation. They were chosen by God to be his special people. They were chosen to be a light, to go into the world, to show the world how great and how good the mercy of their God is so that they could taste a bit of this God's mercy. But instead of being a light, they viewed it as a right, and it ignited a wildfire of acrimony toward the Gentiles. They used that role to proclaim power and superiority and pride over the Gentiles. Their interaction with the Gentiles is rarely positive. They referred to Gentiles not as made in the image of God, but rather as dogs. Now, dogs back then at that point were not these cute and cuddly little pets that you would have at home that would be wagging their tail as soon as you get in the door. Rather, they were dirty and mangy and more, more wild, and they uh, were just sort of disgusting. And William Barclay, in his commentary, noted that the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. And he goes so far to note that there was a common phrase that would be used back then that would say that Gentiles were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. It was not even lawful for a Jew to help with a pregnant Gentile who was in labor. Because if you would help her out, then you would just be simply helping the world have one more Gentile. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or vice versa, they would hold a funeral for that person too. By getting into that marriage, it was as if they were dead to the family. Now in verse 11, Paul sets the tone for breaking down this barrier, at least in helping us to see how deep the divide between Jew and Gentile was. He writes, therefore remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. So he acknowledges another way that the Jewish folks would um, derogatorily uh, talk about Gentiles. It would be by calling them the uncircumcision. Circumcision at that time was the sign by which you would be known to be a part of, the, uh, of God's covenant community. So to be uncircumcised then was to be out of the covenant, to be away from God, to be pushed off from his will and his way. You think back to David when David and Goliath were, were about to go at it. Remember what David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You know, it's a derogatory term here. 
The term literally means foreskin, and it's just as derogatory as you might imagine. To say that the Gentiles were the uncircumcision is to say that they are a worthless piece of flesh from an unmentionable place. That's how they viewed them. And Paul condemns this. He says, in in essence, you know, they may call you this, but, but keep in mind, circumcision is made in the flesh by hands. And you know what else are made by hands? Idols. Time and time throughout Scripture, it says that these idols are fashioned by human hands. So though you may not bear this mark, they have taken this ideal and they have made it into an idol. They are and were just as idolatrous as you. We're all in the same boat here. We all fit into the same category as chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, in which we were dead in our sins and trespasses, in which once we walked according to uh, the, the prince of the power of the air and the, the spirit that's now at work in the disobedient, uh, sons of disobedience and in the passions of our flesh. Now, the tricky part of this verse is transferring it into our day. I have yet to hear an argument on the news. Uh, I don't know if you watched the GOP debate this past week, but I don't think I saw this at all, and I've never heard it in a church. I've never heard a diagnosis of a problem being that someone was uncircumcised. That's done and gone. How that would even come up in a conversation, I don't know. But we do still have barriers. I've been in a church when they were ready to call a competent and they were, they were going to call a competent youth minister who would have been really, really good for the church. And they voted it down because some of the folks didn't like the fact that he had pierced ears. I have uh, known Christians who love Christ that are all tattered up with tattoos and have had insensitive comments given to them because they happen to have some ink on their arms or on their ankles or wherever it is. Believe it or not, there are still churches that bar interracial marriage. I have um, known of churches that place the standard of Christian orthodoxy not on the gospel, not on the word of Christ, but rather on the extent of a political talking point. There are churches that will exclude or include people based on whether or not you use the King Jimmy version of the Bible. Churches divide because of music styles. And we have to be on guard so that we don't alienate people based on our thoughts, actions, words, or our own personal policies? Are we creating unnecessary borders and boundaries instead of being the light of the world that Jesus called to be? Oftentimes we are just like the Israel of old, believing that we deserve to be here, that we deserve the standing with God because we have these things about us and, and, and they don't. We need to remember that at one point we were all separated 
from God. There's a, an additional remembrance that Paul calls us to see here, and it's to remember our separation from God. So we were separated from people, and we were separated from our God. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, remember that Paul talks about the spiritual separation as being dead in our sins and trespasses. And here Paul gives five characteristics of what that looks like. He says that we are separated, alienated, strangers, without hope, and godless. That's who you were. You were separated from Christ. We had no idea who he was. In our culture, we may have heard of him, but until the gospel came to us, um, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we were lost. We were alienated from the covenant, the commonwealth of Israel, which is to say that we were estranged. We were apart from God's covenant community. And we couldn't be part of it because we were strangers to the covenants and promises, meaning that we were excluded from those promises. They didn't apply to us yet. Israel was to bring it to us. They didn't, and so we both missed out. And also it says that we were without hope, why? Because we were godless. The text tells us that uh, it is only through God, through this God and his Christ, that we could be included. Now, the Ephesians weren't necessarily godless. Now, we've been talking a lot about how they actually had quite a number of uh, pagan shrines there. There was the Temple of Artemis and a lot of worship that was going on there. But as far as God with a, cha with a capital G, man, they were godless. Many of us worship the gods of money and entertainment, relationships, substances, education, gambling, government popularity. Many of us are worshiping the, the God of sex. And many of us are still entangled in these things. Then it's still true of you. You can't worship God and money at the same time. You can't praise Christ and be deep into pornography. The same is true of all the other gods of our culture. Though godless, we may still have a God. Every one of us was created to be a worshiper. The question is, who or what are we worshiping? If this is you, the text calls us to repent, which is to turn, separate yourself from those things, and turn to the living Christ. Turn to Christ in faith. Get help. The words here in verses 11 through 12 are in the past tense, and they can be in the past tense for you. All of these things compel us to face an uncomfortable question. Do you remember? Do you remember what it was like? The Ephesians certainly remembered. They had a pretty sick background and engrossed in the, the magic cults of the time. Uh, many participated in temple prostitution as an act of worship for the god goddess Artemis. So while most of us try to forget about these things that brought so much pain to us, Paul says, 
remember them. Remember what it was like. Why? Because we need to know what we've been, what we've become. And that's our second point. Know what we have become. The section is laid out so much like the, the previous section. In verses 2 through 10, the pattern is remember, rejoice, and relive. And verses 1 through 3 was all about the remembering of the bad news of what life was like before God came and intervened. And if you remember uh, that uh, that whole negative plight was negated by the two words, but God. And I made the argument last week that those two words are the two most hope-filled words in all of Scripture, but God. And now similarly, in, in verses 11 through 12, they're really bleak. Who wants to be left out of the life of God? I don't know if anybody does. But in verse 13, a, a two-word new hope reemerges. But now, first it was but God, but now, in Christ Jesus, that's in this union that we have with Christ by grace through faith, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it is in this nearness, it is a nearness to a God who is our Father because as we saw back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, uh, that God is this, this Father who embraces His children and He brings them into a new relationship. It's not a Father that keeps His children at arm's length, but it is one that welcomes Him in. It is not one that is cold and distant. It is one that is warm and close. How does this happen? Verse 13 tells us that, that it's by the virtue of Christ's shed blood. When his arms were stretched wide on that cross, it was as if he was reaching out to us and pulling us in to the heart of God, to a place of stability and comfort and peace and joy. He is bringing us to a place where, yeah, our past yeah, our past is very real, and we need to come to grips with that. Yet, it is a past that has been dealt with, and hope and healing have been delivered in Christ Jesus. Notice also that it's just not about being brought near. It's about recovering peace. Look in verse 14. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace who's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, again, he's obviously going back to this divide between Jew and Gentile. In an average Jewish mind at this time, this conflict between the two would be irreconcilable. They were separated. They were, they were bound by two walls. One was a metaphorical wall. The Jews had the law. They had the commandments. They had the, the way of life, the covenants, the promises, ordinance from, from God. The Gentiles didn't. Further, they had 
the temple, which covered about 40 acres worth of land. And I put an illustration of the temple. I usually don't do this because I don't like having preaching time be like lecture time. But this is really important in order to see what Paul is talking about. So you see the temple here. You see the outside gate there, and there's all these different sections. Well, if you were to go in that front gate over there and then go through 22 to 21 to 15, 14, 5, 4, 3. So as you were going into the temple, the further in you got, the more restrictive it was. So only one guy a year could get into that number one place. And then it just goes out from there. You notice the numbers 23, 24, 24. You see all those outside? That was the court of the Gentiles. That is all the further that they could get in the temple. It was, a, it was a, a, a fence or a wall that was about four and a half feet tall. It was called the Sorog. Uh, it was the closest that the Gentiles could get in. And in case they got any big idea of hopping the fence and coming on over or going through the gate, you see the uh, number 23 uh, throughout there. That was a big inscription that was written on the wall that said this, no foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the balustrade around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. You're a Gentile and you happen to just cross the line into that 22 there, you forfeit your life. They were that serious about it. So how do you build a faith movement then where there is that much animosity? Well, the answer is the cross. On the cross, Jesus not only took care of our individual sins and our alienation from God, but he broke down these relational barriers as well. Not by rejoicing in the, in the diversity so much so in the church, but rather by abolishing it and creating an entirely new Society, here in this society, circumcision or uncircumcision, it doesn't matter anymore. Here in this society, he is getting rid of the Jewish and Gentile distinction completely. It is an entirely new race. It is an entirely new community that he is building. It doesn't matter if you're male or female, black or white, or Indian or English, or, or American or Iranian. All are on equal footing. All were separated and all are included by faith in Christ. All are equally sinful, yet all are equally loved in him and redeemed. There is no place for superiority or cultural pride in this new community called the church. And it forces us then to ask the questions, just like the temple here had signs to keep out Gentiles. What signs do we have in our church, maybe literal or figurative, that are keeping certain people out? You know, as I look around Conabit County, um, we're not a very culturally diverse bunch. And so perhaps we need to search our heart and ask, would you warmly greet someone that comes here that looks absolutely nothing like you? Would you reach out a hand to shake someone else's hand that you can smell him from five to ten feet away? If an immigrant or an exchange student came in here 
having no idea what Christianity is about. And they looked over and saw an American flag. Would they think that the church is really about the gospel or American patriotism? Would they think that it's an American political agenda that we are doing here? Or a Jesus dying for every tongue, tribe, and nation in the world? Sometimes leads me to wonder why we even have the American flag in the sanctuary. It's just not those big macro things that happen. There are plenty of silly things that divide us in churches as well. I've heard of churches, this is, this is true, churches that have divided over the color of carpet. One group likes this color, the other likes that color. You know what they did? They had two sides of the room with different colors in the sanctuary. If you came here next week and there was a new color scheme on the wall in the lobby that, that wasn't tacky, it just isn't what you would prefer or that you're used to in the past 20, 30 years that we've had it, is that what would be only on your mind during worship, that someone would actually change something here? When these dividing walls go up, we tend to forget that this, what we are doing, is not about us. It's about God, who has brought us near, who were far off, and created an entirely new race and community of people in Christ Jesus. So we need to desperately know what we've been, become. But third and finally, we need to become the church. We saw who we were, we saw who we are, and now we need to see what we need to be. You know, we're not uh, uh, who we used to be. Christ has fundamentally changed us. We're part of a new humanity. Uh, and based on all that, now Paul, in verse 19, uses that as a, as a springboard to uh, give this amazing picture of what this new humanity looks like. He restates his point by saying, so, you're not strangers and aliens anymore. You're fellow citizens with the saints. You're not cast off. You're not a stranger you're not on a temporary visa. You've been given a passport. You've been given a birth certificate in this new community. We're citizens together. But he goes on to say that it's not just this new kingdom that we're part of, but it's a new household. He says that we are members of the household of God. We're not just the friend who comes over on Friday night for supper and hangs around for a movie and goes home later that night to his own place. We are the sons and daughters of the living God who has clothed us, who has fed us, who gives us a room to stay in, who uh, helps us when, when we are hurt or when we need help. He gives us a future inheritance in Christ. So because you and I are part of this new family, this new community, when one of us gets hurt, we all hurt. When one of us rejoices, we rejoice together. 
Paul is saying that in this new community, we need each other. In verse 20, Paul helps us understand how this household is built. He says that it's on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So we are constituted on the very words of the prophets and the apostles of old, the sacred scriptures. It is the the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament that set the standard for our lives individually and for our corporate life as a family of God in in a church. We have no right to add to this. We have no right to subtract from this. It is our authority because as Paul states, it points to He says, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together uh, into a dwelling place, a holy temple in the Lord. In the architecture of the time, the the cornerstone would have been uh, this rock in which the entire weight of of the of the structure rests you would think of like a like a jenga board or a jenga game you know where you stack all the all the blocks if that one were to get pulled out the whole structure comes down with it now if you remember back in matthew chapter 16 uh, when jesus asks his disciples uh who do you say i am and peter steps forward as the spokesman for the uh, uh, disciples. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And to that, Jesus, you know, praises them saying, well, you know, this wasn't actually something you came up with. God revealed this to you. But then he said, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This rock was not Peter. Peter is not the rock by which the church is built up. Rather, it is his confession. The church is built on the rock of who Jesus is. He is the cornerstone by which the new uh, temple, the church, is being built. He is rendering the Jewish temple, which still stood at this time of Paul's writing, by the way, completely obsolete. In fact, he is... He is definitively saying that if there ever was another Jewish temple built in Jerusalem, it would be obsolete and it would in fact be an abomination to God because the new temple where he is truly worshipped is in the church, in the hearts and the minds of those who have been redeemed by Christ. And notice how Paul describes the materials of the construction in verse 22. He says, "...in him you also are being built together." into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul said that every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for uh, the time when God comes and finalizes his purchase of us. And through the Holy, though the Holy Spirit dwells in each believer, man, he dwells powerfully when we gather together when we come together in the various manifestations of the Spirit in in each other, comes together. And 
we become this amazing temple being built up for the Lord. This is one reason why worshiping at home, if, if you can physically be here, doesn't really work. When we come together, the Spirit is building His temple. He is putting it together. We are, we are here encouraging each other. We are here weeping with each other, building each other up. And the amazing thing is, is that not only is God the Father building the church on the foundation, the, the Word of God and, and Christ Jesus Himself, but the materials that He is using, you and me, are broken and brittle stones. We're broken. And yet we are being built up in Him. You know, any commercial structure that you see today is put up by steel and by concrete it's to make it stable. None of us, if we were to build a shed or an addition to our house, if we were to go to Oslin Lumber and go see Craig and say, Craig, give me your weakest boards you got. In fact, give me all your scraps. I'll glue them together, and this place is going to be awesome. There's a balcony in there and everything. He would look at you and say, you're crazy. It won't pass code. It's not even smart to do that. You need solid structures. Yet, God is building his temple with broken, cracked, crumbled stones. Yet, it is the strongest structure that will ever live. The gates of hell won't even prevail against this structure. Emmanuel, this is who we are. We are taken from our past, tattered as our past may be. We're brought into the newness of life in Christ. And then we are put into this new humanity, this new community called the church. That is what God has done. So let's put aside our preferences, our prejudices, our hostilities, our conflicts, and strive to be the church. Let's be the new humanity that we were called for. Father.